You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. <laughs> Hello, everyone. So my name's Hetel. If you don't know me, I'm part of the team here at Manchester Vineyard, and I oversee Alpha and our discipleship year, which is called 4-1. I know I'm quite far back in the stage and I'm sitting down. I'm currently pregnant and finding it a lot more comfortable to sit. Um, But hopefully you can all see me and you can see me online. So we've been in the Known to be Grown series and we've been diving into the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in Paul's talks, we've looked at how in order to grow as, uh, as disciples of Jesus, we need to be known. We need to have people around us speaking into our lives encouraging, correcting, and championing in us like the Paul the Apostle did for the Corinthians. Paul the Apostle strategically came to Corinth as a missionary, spent a year and a half there, getting to know people and sharing the gospel. And as a result, many people came to faith and a church community was formed. Paul then moved on church planting in other areas. But on his travels, he received verbal and written reports that things were going badly in Corinth. The Corinthian church was plagued by lots of problems. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address all of these problems. And so through this series, we've examined some of the problems ourselves, such as celebrity pastors, sexual immorality, lack of unity, and improper worship. We've looked at how those issues relate to us today and what we can learn from them here in Manchester, in our city that shares many similarities with the transient, multicultural, and often immoral city of Corinth. The occasion or circumstance that causes Paul to write his letter is one where the Corinthians are struggling with lots of problems that Paul wants to address and correct. Paul ultimately writes the letter because he wants the Corinthians to grow. He wants them to be grown. And it's that concept of growth that I want to take a a deeper look at today. We're known to be grown. So firstly, what does it mean to grow as a person? Well, to bat away the obvious, I'm not referring to growing in height. You only need to look at me to know that I don't have a load of experience in that area. I actually stopped growing at the ripe age of 11. At the start of year seven, I was the third tallest in my class. I like to refer to them as my glory days. By the end of year seven, I was actually pretty much the third smallest. I think I actually became the shortest by the end of year eight. It was very sad. So by growth, I don't mean the vertical kind. I'm not qualified to speak to you on that. But what what do I mean? What does it mean to grow? And I think if you ask the average person on the street this question, they'd probably try and explain the concept of personal growth. So this concept of personal growth is one that is very prevalent in our society and our culture. And I've just Googled a few definitions for us. Personal growth is a process by which a person continually develops themselves to reach their full potential. It is an important part of achieving maturity, maturity, success, and happiness. And then there's another one. Personal growth consists of activities that develop a person's capabilities and potential, build human capital, facilitate employability, and enhance quality of life, and the realization of dreams and aspirations. Sounds pretty good. (laughs) Um, And it's this concept of personal growth. This concept of personal growth comes with a notion that there can be no universal strategy for personal growth, as each person is a unique individual. It's up to the individual to decide what path to take and where that path will lead. And I think the average person on the street would perhaps recognize a strong link between the concept of personal growth and the concept of growing spiritually. 
Again, this idea of spirituality or growing spiritually has become popular in our time and our culture. So I oversee Alpha at MV, and if you've not heard of it before, it's a six-week course where people who don't usually go to church um, have dinner together and explore faith and life and its meaning. And at Alpha, I've often been in discussions where people have identified with the phrase, I'm spiritual, but not religious. You know, I don't do religion, but I'm a spiritual person. And I always find it interesting to ask people what they mean by being spiritual. And what I found is that no two answers have been exactly the same, but I think that's the idea. And as a side point, my favorite answer to the question, what do you mean when you say you're spiritual but not religious, is this one guy who said, I don't do that religion thing, but I am a spiritual person. I'm not a cold-hearted atheist. I still love puppies. (laughs) Which, as you can imagine, raised more questions than answers. I don't know what puppy-hating atheists he's come across, but I don't want to meet them. But back to the point, when people say they're spiritual but not religious, they rarely mean the same thing. The spirituality movement that our culture has embraced values the freedom to define its own spirituality. Whereas religion points to outside oneself to a higher power for wisdom and guidance, spirituality not associated with a religion looks within. To be spiritual but not religious means that you have a deeply personal and private spirituality. Essentially, I get to decide what I believe, I can pick and mix my beliefs and practices from different religions and traditions according to what I think is good and right and valuable at any given moment of time. Barna, a research company looking at the intersection between faith and culture, found in the US that for all those who claim to have no faith, around one-third say they are spiritual. So that's a whopping 34% of US people with no faith identify as spiritual. They even have their own acronym, SBNR, spiritual but not religious. It's very catchy. Um, Barna found that although there were many differences in beliefs amongst these people, there were similarities too. For instance, many SBNRs find their spiritual nourishment in informal practices such as yoga, meditation, silence or solitude, and by spending time in nature. And in our culture here in the UK, the idea of personal spiritual growth is very prevalent. It's practically the air we breathe. We can't escape it. We live in the days of self-help, coaching, well-being, yoga, and 10 steps to achieve your potential. A highly individualistic, progress, and wealth-driven society. And you know, this average person's idea or concept of personal and spiritual growth isn't necessarily a bad thing. But as with many things, culture has taken something good and skewed it into something not quite right. It's missing the mark. And in many ways, we know this and culture knows this. The fact that there is such an interest in personal and spiritual growth shows us something. In our consumer, materialistic, hedonistic society where there's been a loss of purpose, value and meaning, people are searching for deeper realities where they can find wholeness, identity and their purpose again. The problem with the average person's idea of personal or spiritual growth is that it's centred on self and its own concept of self, instead of being centred on the gospel or on Jesus. Growth, and within that spirituality, is meant to be centred and focused on the person of Jesus. We don't make up our own idea of who we want to become or what we want to achieve, but instead our aim is to become more like him. 
we follow Jesus, become his disciples or learners, and embark on this journey of growth to become like him in how we think, act, and behave. And in Christianity, we call this spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is a process by which we are transformed to become more like Jesus. Because the thing is, to be human is to be dynamic, not static. We never stop changing. Every day we are being formed. Every day we are becoming someone or something. Spiritual formation isn't just a thing Christians do. It's a process all humans are involved in. There's just a Christian version of it. Whether we're intentional or not, every response we have to the world around us, every thought we think, every action we take or decision we make, every motion we have that shapes our behavior, every relationship we enter into, all of these things are shaping us into some kind of person. We are all disciples of someone or something. We never stop becoming somebody. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it Jesus or is it someone else? Or is it something else? Because we are either being shaped into the wholeness of the image of Jesus, or at best, a substandard version of Jesus, or at worst, into a broken, destructive caricature of him. We're either becoming agents of God's love and healing to a broken world, or agents of destruction and disease. And perhaps the biggest danger for Christians in the UK is not becoming an atheist, but approaching our spiritual formation much like an atheist would. The temptation is for us to have a, a pick-and-mix sort of attitude to faith. Where we pick up bits of living like Jesus that we like and mix it with individualism, materialism, and just trying to make ourselves happy and meet our own needs and whims. And in that way, we merge with our culture, no longer radically different, not being formed into the image of Jesus, but into our own version of Jesus, or a bit of Jesus and a bit of the world. But as Christians, we are called to become like Jesus, completely and totally like him and not like the world. Our growth is not self-defined or self-focused, but our goal is to become like him. And as spiritual formation is not an option, we have to make the choice whether we grow towards wholeness in Jesus or grow towards becoming something else. We have to be active in our thoughts, our decisions and actions in becoming like him, otherwise we'll unintentionally become like someone else. We ultimately make the choice of who we become. We make the choice of who we grow into. So how do we make the right choices to become more like Jesus? How do we become like him? And so today we're going to dive back into 1 Corinthians to find our answer. We're going to be jumping around a lot, so if you have a Bible, I recommend you open up 1 Corinthians, keep your finger ready. So Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians as how we become more like Jesus is twofold. We become like Jesus through firstly, knowing the truth or the gospel, and then secondly, through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So to change, to grow, to be transformed into Jesus, we need the truth and the spirit, the spirit and the truth. So Paul, our Paul, church leader Paul, touched on these points last week in the passage of 2 Corinthians. We're just going to look in them a bit more detail today. So take them one by one. Firstly, we'll look at knowing the gospel or the truth. So in other words, it means knowing Jesus, his life, his actions, and his promises. And Paul sets a good example. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Paul was aware that the best thing he could know personally and the best thing he could bring the Corinthians to know was Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he spent his time with them, not teaching them human wisdom, but teaching them about Jesus and the cross. But Paul's concern was not that they didn't know the gospel or the truth. As he had taught them that, his concern was that they weren't applying the gospel to their lives. The truth wasn't impacting their thoughts, their actions, or their behaviors. So in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So here, Paul is addressing the problems of divisions in the church as different factions had emerged that followed different leaders. Paul describes giving them milk, the basic truths of the gospel and the life of Jesus. But they had not let it impact their lives. Instead, they were still living by the values of the world, following the culture at the time. They were still quarreling and jealous. They had not let the gospel impact them and grow them into the image of Jesus. And sadly, this is a danger we all face. The danger of becoming converts of Jesus, but not his disciples. The danger of assenting to the truth of the gospel, but not allowing it to grow us up, not allowing it to change us. And we know that Jesus didn't call us to make converts, but he called us to make disciples. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, not converts, but disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, teaching them to become like Jesus. Jesus wants disciples, people that live, act, behave, and think like him. And this is the concern that Paul has in 1 Corinthians, and it's the concern that carries through the whole letter. He wants the Corinthians to grow up, to become like Jesus. He doesn't want them to stay as converts, but to become disciples. So just look at the first three lines of 1 Corinthians, where Paul greets the church. We can easily dismiss the greetings of Paul's letters as repetitive formalities and gloss over them, but Paul often uses his greetings in his letters to introduce his main themes. So first two verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be sanctified, or set apart in Jesus, and called to be his holy people. So right at the get-go, Paul is highlighting that being a Christian isn't a one-off conversion event, but a call to be set apart and holy, or in other words, a call to be transformed and become like Jesus. Paul had planted many churches by this point and seen the gospel impact many people in many places, but he knew that the gospel, the truth, the good news, wasn't something just for conversion. We don't hear the gospel once or twice, become a Christian, and then that's it. The gospel becomes irrelevant to us. The gospel continues to be important in the Christian life, as it not only brings us to faith, but helps us mature and grow in our faith. The gospel is always, always good news. It's never old news. And Paul explains it in this letter. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's that phrase, who are being saved, in this verse. It's in the present tense. We tend to think of salvation or being saved as sort of a past event. For example, we say, I was saved when I was a teenager, or I was saved five years ago. But actually, the Bible speaks about salvation in the past, present, and future tense. And when the Bible speaks about salvation in the present tense, it's talking about sanctification, or the process of becoming more like Jesus. So here Paul is saying that the message of the cross holds or carries the power of God to those who are becoming like Jesus. The message of the cross, or in other words, the gospel or the truth, has the power to transform us into the image of Jesus. And we're at danger of forgetting that in our current church culture due due to the language we use. We often talk about sharing the gospel with non-believers to bring them to faith, but we don't readily talk about believers being strengthened, matured, and made into the image of Jesus by the ongoing teaching of gospel truths. So the gospel is key. The gospel doesn't just bring us to faith, but it carries us through our whole Christian journey. The gospel truth births a whole new reality, a whole new way of life. We can see our whole life through the lens of the gospel because it affects absolutely everything we do. We need the gospel to grow up. So if we look at a few examples of this in 1 Corinthians, so with every problem the Corinthians face, Paul responds by using the gospel, the story of good news to show the Corinthians that they're not living out what they believe. And he urges them to apply the gospel to their lives and to allow it to help them grow up and become like Jesus. So firstly, the problem of division in the Corinthian church. So the Corinthians were treating their leaders like celebrities and quarreling among themselves. They divided into cliques. They were following a certain leader. They'd idolized that leader. They'd pledged allegiance to that leader, all at the detriment of the church's unity. So how does Paul correct this problem? By getting them to focus back on Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul is saying here that Jesus is whole and cannot be divided amongst the church. And he urges the Corinthians to fix their eyes on Jesus and him crucified. He is the one who was crucified, who died for their sins and bought them forgiveness and a new life. Not Paul, not Peter, not Apollos, but Jesus. He goes on to say that they were baptized in the name of Jesus, which signifies coming under Jesus' authority. They were not baptized under the name of anyone else. They belong to Jesus. They owe their lives to Jesus and the cross, and he is calling the Corinthians to remember that, to fix their eyes back on him. So you see, Paul addresses the problem of division by using the gospel, reminding them that they belong to Jesus because of the cross, to show them they're not living out what they believe, they're not allowing the gospel to impact their lives. If they knew and were living out this truth of belonging to Jesus, they wouldn't have divided into all of these cliques. And he does this with all the other problems the Corinthians are facing. So with the issue of sexual immorality, Paul responds with these gospel truths. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Then verse 19. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy, Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. So Paul questions the church, asking them, how can they engage in this sexual immorality when, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they'd been united to him, they have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in them, and they've been redeemed and bought by him. They no longer belong to themselves, but to God, and therefore they need to honour God with their whole lives, including the way they use their body. And then there's the issue of the chaotic and disorderly gatherings, which we read about in chapters 12 to 14. The people in the gathering, there's people sharing a teaching and others are interrupting them. Other people are praying out in tongues and disrupting the service and then freaking out all the non-believers that are there. And Paul responds to this issue by pointing them back to the core facet underlining the gospel. It's God's love. He says the highest value in the gathering should be love. All people in the gathering should use their role to love, serve and seek the well-being of others. He argues that gospel love should undergird the whole thing, with each member of the gathering choosing to sacrificially love others, over-loving themselves, just as Jesus did. And that's just a few examples. It's worth your time looking into 1 Corinthians and at the other problems and trying to see how Paul uses the gospel to address them. And as I said before, the gospel wasn't new to the Corinthians. Paul had spent a year and a half years with them, teaching them about Jesus and the gospel. And many of us today are in a similar position. We know Jesus and we know the gospel. We're familiar with all the stories. We've heard a few sermons. We've read the gospels a few times. But perhaps we too have forgotten that the gospel truth applies to all of our Christian journey. That the gospel isn't something just for conversion, but something that carries us through the whole of our Christian life. Or perhaps we haven't applied the gospel to all aspects of our lives. There's some issues we're facing, some problems we're having, that we haven't let the power of the gospel impact. Or perhaps we've become numb to the magnificence of the gospel truth and the power the gospel has. The gospel is powerful. The gospel has the power to transform us and make us like Jesus. For many of us today, we need a fresh awakening to the gospel. We need to realize afresh its power and ability to transform us. Because we all have our own problems that we're facing. All of us have areas in our lives that need to be transformed by the gospel. And I wonder what these problems are for you. And I wonder what the gospel, the truth, has to say about it. Perhaps you're struggling with anger, anger at being treated unfairly by a person or by the world. Maybe you need to remember how Jesus was treated unfairly, betrayed, mocked and beaten and crucified. And how he, instead of responding with anger to us, chose to respond by loving his enemies, even dying for us. Perhaps you're struggling with selfishness. It might be that you need to be reminded of how Jesus gave us everything. He literally gave us all he had, his life, for the service of others. Maybe it's materialism you struggle with, the desire for more wealth and stuff. I'll just buy one more gadget, one more item of clothing. Maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus gave up all of his privileges. He came as a baby onto this earth with literally nothing to his name. He didn't have a home. He owned very little. He showed us that very little is actually needed to live a life for God. Maybe it's individualism. Jesus came for us individually, yes, but he saves us into a family, into a body of believers. And Jesus plans to come back again at the second coming for his bride, for the whole of the church. If it's fear you're struggling with, the gospel shows us there is nothing, nothing to fear as Jesus rose from the dead and is victorious over all, over our sin, our pain, our enemies and death. 
If anxiety is a problem, the gospel tells us not to worry about anything because we are more important than sparrows or the grass in the fields. The gospel tells us that God knows us intimately and cares for us as his children. I know I'm hammering this point, but honestly, the gospel applies to everything. So just a couple more. If it's envy that you're struggling with, the gospel says we don't need to be dissatisfied because we have everything we need in Jesus. We can be content as we trust and delight in the Lord. He has given us every spiritual blessing and we need no more. If laziness is the issue, we see in the gospel Jesus working hard and ultimately achieving the work of the cross. And he calls us to do the same, working with zeal for his kingdom to come here on earth. If pride is a problem, we look to Jesus, our ultimate example of selflessness, who gave himself for us on the cross. And finally, if discouragement is a problem, we listen again to Jesus' words. He tells us our hearts do not need to be troubled, as ultimately he has overcome the world through the power of the cross, and he will keep to his promises. So I don't know what it is you're struggling with today, but rest assured that the gospel has something to say about it. The gospel is good news to us every day. Every area of our life can be looked at through the lens of the gospel. The gospel truth can bring transformation to every problem we face and allow us to grow up to become more like Jesus. So we've looked at Paul's understanding in 1 Corinthians of how the gospel truth can bring transformation and make us become more like Jesus. But it's not just the gospel truth alone that brings transformation, but the gospel truth in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. We need both the truth and the Spirit to cause us to grow up and become like him. So let's have a quick look at the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is all over 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul speaks of the importance of the Spirit. In fact, the necessity of the Spirit for transformation. So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul says, What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So here Paul explains it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that helps us understand the gospel truth, so we see it as wisdom and not foolishness. And in other words, without the Spirit, we would not understand the gospel. And if we did not understand the gospel, we would have had no hope in applying it to our lives. So the Holy Spirit is key. But then not only that, secondly, Paul talks about how the Spirit is the one that transforms or sanctifies us, the one who sets us apart and does the actual work to make us like Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So it's the Holy Spirit is the one who's washing and sanctifying us, the one who makes us more like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3. So I read this earlier in regards to the divisions in the, in the Corinthian church. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? So Paul argues that as there is jealousy and quarreling, they can't be living by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies and makes us like Jesus. And their quarreling is evidence that the Holy Spirit has not been given access to their heart and their lives. They're not living by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. It's the person who transforms us into the image of God. We can't become like Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a bit like this. Have you, ever, have you guys ever seen those runners that put so much effort into running, but essentially getting nowhere? 
the ones that are sort of pumping their arms, they're pounding their feet on the ground, but they're not really managing to make any sort of distance. You can probably imagine it if you haven't seen them. And that is currently me. So I love running. I've been running for quite a few years now. And I haven't always been this way, but since becoming pregnant and carrying an increasing amount of weight on my front, I've found that I've slowed down considerably. And at 28 weeks, I think it's got to the point that I can't even call what I'm doing running anymore, perhaps more of an over-enthusiastic walk. And the thing is, even though my over-enthusiastic walk is getting me somewhere slowly, even though I'm using every ounce of willpower in me to move, it's not the real deal. I'm not actually running. So it's like dealing with anger. If you have a problem with anger, you may find that you're able to stop yourself from lashing out or swearing by the use of your self-control, your willpower, or your determination. But internally, you're still left seething and bitter at the person you're angry at. You haven't been truly transformed. Self-control, willpower, and determination only gets you so far. You need the Holy Spirit for true transformation of the heart. Without the Holy Spirit, all we have is self-control or willpower, which is limited and varies on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. If you've ever tried to diet or implement an exercise regime, you'll probably know that all too well. We need the Holy Spirit to help us be truly transformed into the image of Jesus. We still put some of the effort in. It doesn't just happen to us without our cooperation, but we find that the Holy Spirit does most of the work. So it's like when you're baking with a five-year-old. You do all the work of getting the ingredients, you measure them out, you mix them together, you monitor the timings. But the five-year-old gets to come along, do a bit of mixing at the end, lick the spoon and put the sprinkles on top. And actually, I remember my first experience of baking very well. The reason being because the first time I was taught to bake, I was actually 20 years old and I was at uni. So having an Indian heritage, baking wasn't really a thing we did at home as Indian desserts and sweets, they don't really need to be baked. So I remember my uni housemate helped me to make my first ever cupcakes for a friend's birthday party. And by helping me, I mean basically she did all the work. I just kind of stood there in awe of her and the baking process. Process. You start with eggs and flour and butter and milk and you end up with a cake. How does that happen? I still don't understand. And actually these cupcakes, they turned out really well. The only problem was that on my way up the, up the drive to the party, I managed to trip up and drop all of them on the floor onto the lawn. Unashamedly, in the dark, I picked off as much grass as possible and then went and presented them to my friend at the party. They were my first ever cupcakes. I was so proud. I wasn't going to let a bit of grass ruin them. But as I said, even, even as a 20-year-old, my friend had done most of the hard work to make those cupcakes. I was there. I did a bit too. I cooperated with the process. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. We share the load with him. He works, and we work with him. So the question is, how do we work? How do we cooperate with the Spirit? Well, one of the key things we can do is put ourselves in a place where the Holy Spirit can minister to us. We place ourselves before God so he has access to our lives. One of the best ways to be open to the Holy Spirit is through the spiritual disciplines. These are all the things we see Jesus doing in the Bible, such as Sabbath, silence and solitude, community, that's a big one, prayer, fasting, celebration and worship. Paul, our church leader, Paul, speaks in an earlier part of the Known to be Grown series about his most transformative moments being in times of worship, which makes sense because worship, like the other spiritual disciplines, brings us to a place where we behold the glory of God and as a result, through the Holy Spirit, we are transformed into his likeness.
2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness. And there isn't any time to go into the spiritual disciplines today. Paul did a series on them during lockdown, if you'd like to look back at it. But just to say, the Holy Spirit is with us here today. In the vineyard, we value ministry time. On a Sunday, this happens after our talk, although it is always happening. It's where we make space to invite the Holy Spirit to come and meet with us and do, do what he wants to do in our lives. So I urge you all today to be open to the Holy Spirit's work in you. We'll have an opportunity after this talk to welcome the Spirit, to respond to the ways he's inviting us into more of the fullness of life with Jesus and to allow him to work in us to make us more like him. I know he wants to meet with you to help you overcome whatever challenge you're facing and help you become more like Jesus. All we need to do is make space and open ourselves to his power and presence. So we've looked at the idea of growth and that for Christians, growth means becoming more like Jesus. We've looked at how we can become more like Jesus through both the spirit and the truth. Gospel truth applied to all areas of our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing I want to address today is the question, why aim to become more like Jesus? Why do we do it? What's the point of being on this journey of spiritual formation or growth? So this is something I've been thinking about recently and something I wanted to mention today is I think it's a place a lot of us can go wrong. The thing is, we don't become more like Jesus to have better, happier lives for self-fulfillment or to be more at peace. We don't do it to just tick a box off on one of the requirements Jesus has for our lives. Instead, we do it for others. The ultimate goal of becoming like Jesus is for the sake of others, for the sake of our family, our friend, our colleague, the city, the nation, for the sake of our neighbour. One of the biggest dangers we face in our walk with Jesus today is radical individualism. We approach God with a focus on ourselves. We embrace a spirituality that is for me, my way of connecting with God. And as a result, we're no different from those espionars I mentioned earlier. We practice a purely inward spirituality. We practice meditation or silence and solitude with the main purpose of relaxing. We practice Sabbath, but in reality, it looks more what our, like what our society calls a mental health day. Instead of focusing on God and our community, it focuses only on ourselves. We become like Jesus for ourselves, becoming like him as a way just to be happier and more fulfilled. Our spirituality feeds into Project Self and not into the mission of God. And of course, becoming happier is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But it should be a byproduct of something far bigger, becoming like Jesus for the sake of others. We become like Jesus so we can love the Lord with all our heart, soul and mind, and so we can love our neighbour. And it's important to note that we actually need each other. We need community to become like Jesus. Paul highlighted, our Paul highlighted this to us in his Known to be Grown Part 1 talk, that the lie that the world tells us is that we can become whole and mature on our own. And he invited us to be part of something bigger, a community, and I encourage you to watch back that talk. The thing is, our relationships with others are not only the testing grounds of our spiritual formation, but also the place where our growth happens. It's easy to think that becoming like Jesus happens in our alone time with God. We become like him, and then we're ready to be a Christian to others. But actually, formation takes place with others, not apart from them. Every interaction we have, every relationship we form, has the potential to transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. And Paul uses the metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 of the church being the body of Christ. 
A body has many parts, but each part is vital for the body to function. As individual cells of the body of Christ, we each have unique personalities, gifts, temperaments that exist for the sake of others. We are, me we are means of grace to others, and they are means of grace to us. Through others, we are often healed, nurtured, and encouraged, and we reciprocate by healing, encouraging, and nurturing others. We need each other. We need community to become more like him, and we need each other to fulfill our calling to help others become more like him too. So for me, personally, one of the most significant periods of spiritual formation where I experienced accelerated transformation happened during a discipleship year I took at my previous church. I'd been a Christian for a year, and like anyone else, I had a lot of baggage, a lot of wounds, and ingrained sins that needed dealing with. And I entered into this community with a group of others that had also committed a year of their lives to more intentionally pursue Jesus, love each other, and serve the church. And it was in those deep, vulnerable, and interdependent relationships that I was changed. I was loved, healed, encouraged, supported, and challenged to become more like him. And by the end of the year, a remarkable transformation had taken place. So I'd taken a year out between my third and fourth year of uni to do this discipleship year, and I was working at Costa to support myself. And I remember one of my non-Christian uni mates said to me near the end of the year that one of the biggest changes he'd noticed in me is that I'd become more loving. And I remember feeling taken aback. I don't think I'd ever thought about how loving I was before, before becoming a Christian. And I remember responding by humbly lifting my praises before Jesus, thanking him for being at work in my life and transforming me into more of a loving person. So I urge you all afresh today to commit to community. Commit to Sundays, commit to a small group, commit to being family as a church. Be with people regularly that push you towards Jesus, support you in becoming like him, and that you, in return, can support them to do the same. And for some of you, that may look like taking an even more intentional step, perhaps committing to our 4-1 year that's starting in September, which is our equivalent of the discipleship year. It's based on Ephesians 4-1, which calls us to live a life worthy of our calling. For others, perhaps it involves committing to live in a community house with other Christians, committing to a certain area, to a certain job. Whatever it is, I encourage you, just take the next step in committing to community. And then the second thing I noticed on my discipleship year was about halfway through the year, my focus changed. I felt God calling me to look beyond myself, beyond my personal transformation and my relationship with him to the life of others, others outside the church, to the city and the world. I felt him highlight my unique gifts, my temperament, my personality, and invite me to serve others, drawing me in on the exciting mission of God in this world to participate in his kingdom coming here on the earth. We become like Jesus for the sake of others, not just others in the church, but others outside the church too. The natural outworking of becoming like Jesus is to be thrust outwards towards the world, to be an agent of the healing, redeeming, and transforming love and grace of God to a broken world. The Old Testament prophets regularly remind God's people that worship of God is incompatible with injustice. True worship should lead us to care for our neighbour, the poor, the sick, the socially, politically, and economically disadvantaged. And we see in the New Testament how love for God goes hand in hand with love for neighbour. That godliness that is pure is to look after the poor and marginalised. Becoming more like Jesus should lead us to loving others, to helping our neighbour, to sharing our faith, to caring for the poor, welcoming the marginalised, to embracing the lonely, to bring God's love and grace into all environments we find ourselves in. 
The truth of the matter is, is that if your spiritual formation isn't leading you to love others more, then you're not becoming like Jesus. And in all of this, we can look to the example of Jesus from a place of perfect union with the Father, embodying the truth and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He went on a journey, a mission to save the world. Becoming like Jesus is becoming like the one who completely, unconditionally and wholeheartedly gave himself for others. And this is the direction that God is moving us towards. We become like Jesus for the sake of others. So today we've looked at the concept of growth, how God calls us to become like Jesus. We've explored how 1 Corinthians teaches us to do that through knowing the truth, knowing the gospel, and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And finally, we've looked at why we do this, not for self, but for the sake of others. Brilliant. Should we stand? We're just going to take a moment to welcome the Holy Spirit. I really encourage you guys just... Yeah, engage with God. You might find it helpful to, um, to close your eyes and to um, have your hands out to God. The Holy Spirit is here and mm. something that we can receive. Mm. And he wants to meet with us. And guys, even if you're online... I watched a conference recently. It wasn't even live. It had finished. And during the ministry time, the Holy Spirit just came and got me. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. We welcome you. What is it you're doing? A few people throughout the morning and before the morning had different prophetic words that they shared and there seems to be a bit of a theme. This theme of kind of refocusing, of trusting afresh in him coming afresh to him. One person uh, quoted Jesus when he said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And they just had this such a strong sense. There are people here who are like bowing under mm. burdens this morning. Mm. Like challenging relational dynamics, addictions, whatever it might be. Mm. And Jesus is just saying afresh, come to me. Mm. Give it to me. Mm. Mm. Someone else um, was sharing the story of Jesus walking on the water. You might know it. There's just all sorts of things going on that are troubling mm. his followers. There's these crazy waves and wind and they're in trouble and Jesus turns up. And as one of his followers, Peter, looks at him, he can actually walk on water. As he trusts Jesus, he can do what no one has ever done before. And it's only when he gets distracted by the wind and the waves again that things go a bit pear-shaped. But even then, Jesus is there for him. Mm. Oh, Jesus, we just invite you. Mm. And you just... Yeah, I think there's going to be some of us here today that just need the Holy Spirit to transform something in their lives. Mm. They need the power of the Spirit to work for transformation.
I think this is, yeah, this is a moment that the Holy Spirit can do this in, mm. alongside all the other times we have at home and community groups too. Mm. Yes, I think if that is you, if you're longing for the Holy Spirit to work some transformation in your life, mm. yeah, make yourselves available and open to God. He wants that to, he wants to do that. I feel like there might be a few others that have realised that the gospel's become quite dry to them. That the stuff that Jesus did, I don't know, it's just not having the same impact. Maybe your first love has sort of has died down. I think the Holy Spirit wants to just reignite your love, your passion, your, your heart for him again. Mm-hmm. He died for you. He came for you. He knows you and loves you. He wants you to know him intimately in an intimate relationship. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.